Hey everybody, Michael Cohen here, welcoming you back to another episode of Cohen's Corner. Thank you very much for tuning in to today's show. As always, you can find episodes of this podcast available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. If you happen to be listening on an Apple device, we encourage you to leave a star rating, preferably five stars if you like the show, and maybe a comment to let us know what you thought of past episodes and maybe what you might like to hear down the road. I check all the feedback and read all the comments myself, so for anyone that has given some words of wisdom thus far, I really appreciate it, and for anybody that will do so down the road, I look forward to reading your comments as well. Today's guest is NFL features writer Tyler Dunn, who works at Bleacher Report and has quickly become one of the better feature writers in the country. Tyler has been a friend of mine for quite a while now. He and I went to college together at Syracuse. Tyler was a senior when I was a freshman, and he sort of took me under his wing a little bit at the Daily Orange, which is the independent student newspaper there. Uh, when I was writing stories, just getting started, not really knowing what I was doing, Tyler, who was you know really, really good, among the best in the country at that point, is a senior covering the football and basketball team. He took extra time out of his day to read some of my stories, to give me some feedback and to just be a really nice sounding board for somebody trying to break their way into the business, if you will, and, and learning all the tricks of the trade at age 18, 19, 20 years old. Uh, we also had a really good friendship away from journalism. We used to play basketball all the time on campus. We used to uh, go to music events and concerts and things around town. And Tyler's just one of the, the nicest guys you'll meet. And uh, I still rely on him as a terrific resource and a terrific friend all these years later. So it's really fun to have him on the podcast and catch up a little bit. As I mentioned, he works at Bleacher Report, where he writes long-form, in-depth features about the NFL. He might write 5,000 or 6,000 words about a particular player, sort of breaking down everything about that player's background, their mental approach, how they do their job, all different kinds of things. He's really good at writing profiles and finding unique angles about guys that, that haven't really been explored before. And uh, if you want to check out some of his work, please feel free to go over to Bleacher Report or check him out on Twitter at Ty Dunn. That's Ty Dunn, D-U-N-N-E. And so this is a really fun episode. We talked about some of the recent stories he's written, some big profiles of Marquise Hollywood Brown, the wide receiver for the Baltimore Ravens, uh, Jameis Winston, now a quarterback for the New Orleans Saints, formerly of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And we also dove into uh, one of his recent pieces on Minka Fitzpatrick, who kind of took the NFL defensive world by storm last year after being traded from the Miami Dolphins to the Pittsburgh Steelers. We talked about how he approaches his stories, what the reporting process is like, traded some sort of behind-the-scenes secrets of how we report certain things, and so it's kind of like one of those do-your-job podcasts, like when I talked to uh, Jim Nagy, a former scout earlier on a prior episode, we talked about the scouting process. Well, this is a little bit about the writing process. And then we also talked a bit about the NFL, uh, what we're looking forward to seeing this year, what sort of everything is like in the era of COVID and, and what we think the chances are for success down the road. So lots of different topics covered, lots of ground covered. We even mixed in a little bit of NBA talk at the beginning because Tyler and I are both big basketball fans. And uh, obviously with the NBA playoffs going on now, lots to talk about there. So we shot the breeze a little bit about some hoops before we got into football. A little bit of a fair warning here. There was a, a brief window in the middle of the podcast where we had some audio problems with Tyler's cell phone. It, I think it's two questions and two answers where Tyler had, where it's a little bit difficult to hear Tyler. You can still hear him. You can still make out the words and all that kind of stuff. It just sounds a little bit different and it's a little bit 
uh, a little bit more groggy, if you will, than the rest of the podcast. So once you get to that point, please do continue listening to the rest of the podcast because after that brief window of audio problems, we got it resolved. And so the overwhelming majority of the podcast, the beginning, uh, most of the middle and the end all sounds just like it normally would. There's just a brief pocket in the window where th- uh, in the middle, excuse me, where things went a little bit awry. So hopefully you'll stick with it. I think you guys will really enjoy this podcast. It was a lot of fun for me. And without further ado, let's get into a conversation with Bleacher Report NFL features writer Tyler Dunn. Well, Ty, thank you very much for carving out some time to join me. I know you've been spending a lot of time with the family this summer and uh, lovely little Ella and uh, and everything going on up there in, in western New York. How has it been spending uh, so much time around family and friends? I know you've got a lot of close ties up there in the Buffalo area, so I'm sure in some ways this uh, this quarantine has actually been refreshing in some regards. Yeah, it really has. I mean, I haven't... Uh been able to really travel for work since I want to say it was the end of February, early March is uh, when I was in Florida talking to Hollywood Brown, Sammy Watkins came back a week later, uh, the Rudy Gobert thing happens and then boom. Yeah. It's, it's been phone calls and zoom since then. And in terms of the, fa- the family life, it's it, that that's kind of been the silver lining, man. I mean, we've got a little baby girl and to be there every day, watch her grow. I mean, she's just laughing and giggling. She's the, the happiest baby on the face of the planet. I'm convinced just, <laughs> just ran a quick study that's confirmed. She's just the best. It, it's you can't even put it into words how awesome it is just to wake up every morning and see her smiling and loving you. And uh, it's been great. Yeah. I grew up like a grew up an hour South of Buffalo, um, small town, Salamanca went to high school at Lickettville and, uh, we got a house about ah, about 45 minutes north of there and about 25 minutes south of her family in East Aurora. And it's been great. It's been great. Yeah, we, we've been able to see family and friends. And um, yeah, I mean, obviously we want this quarantine and pandemic and COVID to just uh, fade away. That'd be great. And it can, it can go away any day now. But uh, if, there's a, if, it's, if there's a silver lining, that'd be it. A lot of family time. I'm with you. I'm with you. I, I will say one of the other things that I've enjoyed, and, and we'll talk a little football in a second, but I got to ask you, being an NBA guy, these midday NBA games are pretty darn good, I got to tell you. And uh, I mean, you know, for me, as a as somebody who doesn't really have a, a team that I rooted for growing up, I got to say, um, I think watching Luka Doncic has become one of my favorite things in the world. He's just unbelievable, isn't he? He's unreal. I mean, that was just last night. Oh my God, just in and out of that game. But I mean, nobody does what he does. It's almost like he just kind of completely slows the game down to a crawl, like to his pace. And it's like, uh, he's like I mean, Paul Pierce kind of did that, but Luka Doncic does it, and he can pretty much get any shot he ever wants at any moment. So uh, it's it's been great. I'm with you. I mean, they can just have games on during the day anytime, and I'd, I'd be cool with it. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's weird. I mean, it's, it's definitely weird, like, to – not see home crowds and have that atmosphere with some of these playoff games. But I think after not having sports for whatever it was, three and a half, four months, we'll just, we'll just take whatever we get. It's, it's pretty glorious. Did you, uh, did you feel personally wounded when they did not invite the Hornets to the bubble? Oh, I can't even talk about it. You kidding me? I mean, they would have done some serious damage. That team that Jordan has assembled. Oh my God. I mean, it's just, just oozing with talent at every every position. I, I don't even know how 
you decide who to play. I mean, Nick Batum. Uh, <laughs> oh, you know, I know. Did you see Michael Kidd Gilchrist was on was on the floor yesterday? Yeah, he, I think in he, Dallas, and was, right? And he was making threes. <laughs> oh my God! Of course, he leaves Charlotte and he learns how to shoot a jump shot. Right? Like yeah. that was his thing. He did not shoot. Um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, they're terrible. They're they're pretty awful. Um, you know, they they're kind of in that no man's land where they've never like they the one year they were got awful and should have gotten that cornerstone player of course was when they ended up with kid gilchrist instead of anthony davis so uh good good lesson for the anti-tankers out there sometimes it's 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 good to tank you know i think they should still tank again and, and take another shot at it. otherwise you're handing out the money to terry rosier and nick batum and you're at home as everybody else is in the bubble yeah it's uh it's it's tough to watch for the hornets fans i'm sure um who, who do you have coming out of the east and west tie who do you like Man, good question. I want to say, uh, and the Raptors are so deep. I mean, God, and I love Kawhi Leonard. Don't get me wrong. I, mean, I think he might even be the best player in the game. But to lose him and to still come back, you know, maybe the, the second or third best team in the East. I, I think, the, I think the first. I think if you get them in seven, seven game series with the Bucks, I'll take their experience. I mean, they just they can beat you in so many different ways. Pascal Siakam's a, a star. Fred VanVleet can get hot at any moment. Um, I, I, I'll take the Raptors out of the East. I, I just think that they've, they've got it. They, they, they've been there. They've been through. And even without, without Kawhi Leonard, they've got enough offensively. And in the West, man, the Lakers didn't look good. I, no, they did I, not. I don't know. You, you tell me. But, like, that just didn't seem like the team that we all watched, uh, you know, pre-COVID. Um, let's go with the Clippers. I mean, they run deep too. They've got the two studs that can get hot at any moment. They can kind of like just take turns. Whoever's hot, lean, lean on that. And it, when I was just looking at the roster, I mean, God, when you really go to their bench, I mean, they really go about 10 deep. And yeah. I think that really matters. The deeper you get in the playoffs where those stretches, when you can't just be relying on Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, I mean, they can get a little offense out of Lou Williams they, they still have enough defense. I think that I'm going to mispronounce his name. Is it Zubach? Yeah, that's right. That's there. right. The former, the former like Laker, big, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he used to be a big stiff, but, like, I think he's been playing pretty well. I mean, he's had some really strong games, and he can, he can just use up six fouls on Anthony Davis in a game like that. Yeah. Anthony Davis, there's been stretches he just looks soft, you know? I mean, he just kind of should dominate some of these games, and he doesn't, so... Clippers, Raptors, Kawhi Leonard Ball. There's your prediction. Okay, I I think I'm gonna. I, I definitely think it's gonna be Raptors and Bucks in the East in the Eastern Conference Finals. But I'm gonna go with the Bucks. I just I watch Giannis and and I know he struggles to shoot and that always scares me a little. I'm a big believer that if you're gonna win a title, your best player has to be able to make three pointers. I think if you go back and look over the last 10, 15 years to to try and find a team who won a title and whose best player was not capable of shooting three pointers, you're not gonna find yeah. them in today's game anymore. So that does scare me a little bit but you know with what Middleton Middleton can do and what George Hill can do off the bench and even you know DiVincenzo has been pretty good for them and so I think the Bucks have enough to to get to the finals and and I agree with you that it's going to be the the Clippers out of the West um you know you mentioned the the necessity to be deep and I think in some ways this new format kind of puts even more of an emphasis on that because yes you don't have the travel anymore so that takes away from some of the fatigue but 
there's not as many days between games anymore. They're basically playing every mm-hmm. other game for a full series. And and so I do think depth really matters there. And I agree that the Lakers have not looked good at all. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if Portland took them out in the first round, honestly. Um, you know, I just think with as well as yeah. Lillard is playing. I mean, look, I said Doncic might be the most fun guy to watch in the NBA. I think Lillard has an argument, too. He's pretty incredible what he can do. So I'll, I'll take the Clippers as well coming out of the West, but I'm going to go with the Bucks in the East. And either way, you know, it'll be a lot of fun because, you know, watching Giannis and watching Kawhi, that's going to be a, a hell of a matchup, those two guys. It will be. I mean, really, it's – and you mentioned the Blazers. They've just got like three or four big bodies that they can just throw at Davis, don't they? I yeah. mean, this, this is not the same team that that fin- that was, what, 10 games below 500 before – the shutdown. Right. Um, I mean, so, Nurk- yeah, they, Nurkic they're, they're has been be unbelievable tough. since coming back. They're big man. Uh, Yusuf yeah. Nurkic. Yeah. And so it'll be interesting. Definitely. We'll have to see if uh, maybe this will be Carmelo's best chance to get a ring. You never know. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Well, we all know Jim Beheim really prepares players to play in the NBA. So I've, <laughs> You know, judging off that history, I, I think he does get that right. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think uh, you know the the proof is in the pudding there with uh, Tyler Lydon and Hakeem Warwick and uh, mm-hmm. all these guys that turned into perennial All NBA players. Obviously, so we'll yeah, have maybe to see a Rocky Christmas. Yeah, there Mookie you go. Jones is kicking around the NBA, right? He's yeah. on the he's on the bench somewhere. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's funny. That's funny. Well, let's uh, let's get down to to business here. Talk a little NFL, and uh, one of the things I like to do both on this podcast and just in general with some of the stories that I've written over the years is I I really like to talk about process and how people do their jobs. I find that really interesting. And so for, for somebody like you who has the opportunity to write, you know, these, these long form stories and really kind of dive into either guys' backgrounds or sort of the, what's going on in their minds or how a franchise works. I think it's kind of cool to, to learn a little bit about how you put some of these stories together because everybody sees, you know, sort of the, um, you know, the, the day on Twitter, when the story goes viral or some of the quotes that are shared by Bleacher Report on Instagram and things. And, and I think sometimes it's unique to kind of see how, how all that comes together. So, um, I, you know, I went through and, and read some of your stories recently from this spring. Some of them have been really, really good. And, and I kind of want to ask you about a couple of them, especially in this era that we talked about where everything has to be done over the phone. So before we get into one specifically, I just want to kind of ask you, you know, let's say it's, um, you know, pre-COVID and you have the opportunity to write about, I don't know, any guy that maybe you don't really know that well. And, you know, I don't know whether you you work it out with him or the agent or if they've got a publicist or whatever, but they say, okay, you know, Ty, come on out to, uh, come on out to Seattle and we'll give you a couple days with, uh, you know, I don't know, Marshawn Lynch back in the day, whatever, uh, which would be unlikely because it's Marshawn, but, you know, just for the sake of an example, (laughs) you know, so how do you approach it? You know, you get to go in and and you you fly in and you you speak with this guy and you're in this locker room or maybe you take him out to dinner and, and maybe it's a guy you don't know really well or a guy that maybe you've never really spoken to at all how do you approach it in order to turn out these really good stories and really insightful stories definitely man um you know i think it's an inexact science because there's not like one template that i try to follow on every single story because every single story is just going to be so different than the last uh, you know in terms of a profile if it's a story on a uh, a specific player that you know i might not know a heck of a lot about i I think i just start with um you know obviously you need a good you need you need a good idea you don't want to go into something and say this is what the story is this is what i'm going to write and have it all preconceived written in your head i mean that would be foolish but you got to have an idea that you know this guy's interesting because of this 
and then, all right, let's call, let's talk to as many people around that player as, as possible. I mean, maybe it's parents, maybe it's coaches, maybe it's teammates. Um, just try to learn as, as much as I can. I mean, gosh, you might end up using 5% of whatever you hear, but you're subconsciously letting more and more and more information just kind of, you know, or seep into your subconscious. I mean, you're, you're learning as much as you can about, about this player that you want to write about. And then, yeah, in terms of access, it's tougher than ever. Obviously it's just, uh, it, it can be difficult to, to get a person in a setting away from a locker, away from a locker room, away from a group interview and, and get them to open up and, and really go places that are, are deeper, that are beyond the X's and O's and beyond something you'd, you know, you'd, you'd read in um, just a daily story. So, you know, I, I'll, I'll try to get guys directly myself if I, if I can, you know, whether it's just finding their number, giving them a call, shooting them a text, setting something up and, and that, and that works out in a lot of cases. Maybe it's reaching out to a publicist, a marketing agent, somebody like that that works directly for a player and is, sees this as an opportunity for them to maybe open up on something they haven't before. And then, yeah, the teams themselves can be helpful. You know, every team is different. Uh, some are more helpful than others. Obviously, you know, this is probably a conversation for a, for a different point, but I think COVID is it's kind of throwing that for a loop. I mean, we'll see what happens with that all and, and when, you know, reporters are allowed to be in an open locker room again. Uh, but in terms of the stories I kind of do, they're, you know, I've got the space to really um, go deeper, to sit down with somebody for an hour, two hours, three hours, maybe multiple days. And I, 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 just, I, I guess the goal is always to try to tell a story that readers haven't read before i mean it's right. it can be tough i mean a lot's been said a lot's been written a lot's been regurgitated but i constantly just try to be driven by that what what is let, let's just give the reader something they haven't heard before there's so many stories out there so many players that have so many things to say and um gratefully so many of them are unbelievably generous with their time to do exactly that so i mean that's super super vague and super super general yeah. but um i, I think that's kind of how I'd start to go about it. So there's there's kind of two schools of thought that I've found when it comes to writing a profile on somebody. You can either try and go to that person and talk to them as one of the first people that you talk to. In other words, the subject of the story is one of the first interviews that you do. And then people kind of mm -hmm. use that as a gateway. And so if the rapport is good, then hopefully that individual, the subject, opens up some doors maybe to some family members or to some coaches, some friends, whatever. Or there's kind of another school of thought, which is you try and sort of work your way in from the periphery and you start by talking to some people that know that individual and you get closer and closer and closer and the subject ends up being maybe one of the last people that you interview and then when you sit down with that person you have the ability to you know draw on some of the things you learn about them from you know theoretically people who are close to them I've always favored the latter I like to do mm -hmm. the person I'm writing about toward the end uh, what's kind of your thought on that you just nailed it. I mean, that's, yeah, you kind of go one or two directions there. And, and then, you know, you also throw in your own research and, and you're trying to read just as much as you can stuff that's already kind of been out there in the atmosphere that maybe, maybe people missed. I mean, I remember there, it might've been like a college newspaper or a small local daily, uh, digging up some old article. I was, I was going out to talk to Vontaze Burfick and it was, it was in the middle of the suspension in Cincinnati and 
think it was 16 and uh like randomly saw like that he almost died like three times before he was i don't know eight or nine years old and but they hadn't really nobody had really gotten into it beyond that and so when i sat down with him and started bringing it up his eyes kind of lit up and he was willing to talk about he was surprised anybody even knew but it was it was out there i guess nobody just did it back in the day um, so that's another element that you do so well, Mike, yourself. I mean, you're, you're, you're researching and going through court documents and police reports, um, <laughs> you know, way better than I'll ever dream of. <laughs> so there's a, there's a lot of ways to find out information that isn't out there. But um, to answer your question, uh, yeah, I think it, I, I try to talk to as many people as I can before sitting down with the subject so I'm informed, so I ask better questions. So you're going to go places that you otherwise wouldn't, and right. you're able to connect one thought to the next and one question to the next with somebody. Um, but I don't know. I mean, there is a, I, I do think there is a value to just starting with the guy you're talking. It, it kind of depends on the situation, right? Like if you know that, you know, you're going to go out and like, I went, I went down and, and talked to Sammy Watkins and we talked over dinner, over drinks for, five plus hours in Florida mm-hmm. at favorite restaurant. I kind of knew that, you know, there's more questions I had. This was, this was going to be a conversation and a relationship that I could kind of continue on um, past that atmosphere and that dinner. And, and it did. And it, we, we did. So I, I kind of started there with him and knew he'd be the dominant subject and probably more important than anybody else I talked to. Um, so yeah, they, that it helped there because then like his, his mood kind of changed. I mean, he went from, you know, declaring potential World War Three in Kansas City and being pretty unhappy about the situation to uh, deciding to stay and deciding that he loves Andy Reid and this is a coach he does want to play for and a team that lets him be himself. So, uh, yeah, I just think everything's different. Do you ever find a situation where you've, you know, flown across the country to meet up with a guy and, you know, he agrees to go to dinner or something and, and the, the, the um, it's it just like, it doesn't connect between you guys for whatever reason. And, and I'm not trying to say like, did you not do your job? I'm just saying like, sometimes, you know, I yeah. might sit down with a guy and it's just like the chemistry just doesn't get there. And like the questions aren't landing or the guy is nervous or fidgety. Like, do you ever have that where you've, where you've, you've flown somewhere and you're all excited? about it and it just it doesn't come off the way you wanted <laughs> no like every single story went exactly as i planned <laughs> and then some so it was perfect no <laughs> that, that happens definitely happens i mean there's been times too where like i'm kind of sweating it out you know you, you're thinking you're you got something set up and you're gonna meet with the guy and you know next thing you know they're kind of ghosting on you they're they're, they're not texting you as much they, they're disappearing and then Boom! All of a sudden, you're bowling with Shaquem Griffin at 11 o'clock at night. I, I had a flight out the next morning. I was delayed the flight for the next day, and I mean, I was getting a little worried. Like, is this going to happen? I was kind of following around in the day a little bit, just sitting down to talk. Um, he just was really busy. It was right before the draft, and he is he was doing his doc with ESPN or something during the day, and then that was gone. And I mean, he's one of the friendliest pro athletes you'll ever meet in your life. He's just like. Eh. I like the ball. Let's go bowl and talk for, I don't know, an hour and a half, did some bowling and it was great. So, uh, but to answer your question, yes. I mean, I'm trying to think there's just definitely been some instances there. I remember, uh, right when I took the job at Bleach Report. So, you know, I mean, you're always trying to prove yourself, but the first couple of stories is like, man, I better, I better bring it back. You know, I got a, got a little different story here to 
let folks know like this is what you're getting. You're going to come here and read a feature. And uh, the idea I had was Bruce Urban had just signed with the Raiders, and his past had been written about here and there. I think I knew it was even rougher than, than folks might have known, like in terms of where he grew up in Atlanta and just kind of living on the streets, running with some rude white people, breaking into, I'm paraphrasing, I'm trying to remember, it's been a while. I think he broke into a, a drug house and, and, you know, could have could have died, you know? I mean, he ran, just kind of clashed with the wrong folks. And then, you know, here he is, boom, sending a multi-million dollar uh, deal with the Oakland Raiders. So I just did a story kind of like on the then and now, the two, the two Bruce Irvins, and uh, talked to the Raiders. He was in for it. Uh, flew across the country, drove up to Napa for training camp, sat down with him, and I want to say like seven minutes into the interview, a PR official like pull, pulled him away. He said, oh, yeah, he's got things to do. He's done. Wow. He was into it. I mean, he was enjoying the conversation, I think, and, I said, well, you know, can we have a few more minutes? And I, I want to say it was another three and a half minutes. And he pulled them away, and he said, oh, you know, you guys can finish up, you know, on the phone, you know, followed up via email, never got that phone conversation, never heard back. Um, so that was disappointing, <laughs> to say the least. It's like, man, I want to start with a bang here. And it's like, we're talking about some pretty deep stuff, and uh, the access just isn't there. Um, so, but you, but you know what? Like, this is, I mean, you do this all the time yourself. It's like, it doesn't prevent you from doing the story. No. If, if anything, it can make the story better. It can make it work harder. It can, it can take the directions you otherwise wouldn't go if, if that's going to happen. So um, I was in Atlanta uh, working on a Melvin Gordon story. The charges were there. And, and I just realized, that, you know, Bruce Irvin's mom is here. We got, we got lunch. Um, she told story after story. She was unbelievable. I ended up talking to a bunch of X-Raider greats and, you know, pieced together a story that, you know, might, might have been better, probably better, probably would have had more detail than uh, if, you know, I did talk to Urban for another half hour and I didn't, you know, didn't place those calls. So uh, there, there's always a way to get it done, but I, I was definitely uh, sweating it out there on that trip west. I agree with you. I think there's definitely been times where sometimes some of my better stories, I think, have been when the subject doesn't really cooperate. And, you know, I can think of an example when I was covering the Packers, I really wanted to do something on Ted Thompson. And and so I had gone down to where he lived, uh, where he grew up in Texas. And it's this tiny little backwoods town. And his dad still lives there. And his brother still lives there. And, you know, most of the people that grew up there stayed in the town. And, um, and so I was reaching out to all these people. And, and you know, Ted didn't really want to participate too much because you know it's Ted he's pretty reclusive he doesn't like to do the media so I was like okay how can I try and you know get enough to tell this guy's story and get it right without you know the guy himself participating and so what I was able to do was I I went online and I found a copy of his high school yearbook uh, at some (laughs) website that tracked yearbooks all over the country and it had the names of everybody in his class. So I just started plugging them into a database and I must have found, you know, of his 100-person class or whatever it was, I think I found contact information for like 45 or 50 of them. And I just called all of them. And some of them didn't want to talk and some of them were wrong numbers and things. But I ended up getting about, you know, 12, 13, 14 guys and girls <laughs> that he went to high school with. And I was able to paint this picture of like a guy who, you know, now is really reclusive, like I said, really quiet, doesn't do the media. 
Um, but back then he was, you know, sort of like this, this popular varsity athlete who was, you know, really friendly and outgoing and quick witted and everybody liked him. And, and so it was just kind of like almost, you know, you mentioned the two Bruce Irvins. It was almost kind of like the two Ted Thompson's, the one where he was really open and, and jovial and things as a kid. And then how he had transformed into this really stoic, quiet professional as GM of the Packers. So I agree. Sometimes when the, when the subject doesn't cooperate, it makes you work harder and find other ways um to tell the story and and so those can be really interesting i i want to ask you about the Jameis winston story you wrote earlier this year because i think that you know that was a a really fascinating one just because you know as a a guy he's been sort of this lightning rod ever since college whether it was you know the incredible talent on the field winning the heisman trophy or some of the you know silly shenanigans off the field that got him in trouble and then he goes to tampa and on one hand he puts up historic numbers and on the other hand he puts up historic numbers for the wrong reason and so you know then he's this guy that is going into free agency and you know probably thinks he's going to get a a decent deal somewhere given you know the production that he's had and instead it's it's basically crickets until Sean Payton comes along and and I'll let you pick it up from there but you know what interested you about the the Jameis Winston situation and and were you surprised that that he was willing to give you as much time as he did given that you know in some respects it could have been viewed as a pretty embarrassing offseason for him no doubt I mean I was really surprised, I mean, for, for several reasons. I mean, I had tried to get Jameis for, for a while. I want to say it might have been like a, even like a year and a half in the works of just wanting to talk to this this, this fascinating player for many, many different reasons. And I, I just think last season, you know, like you just said, a, a lot of good and a lot of bad, maybe the most bizarre, ridiculous, outlandish season that we've ever seen from a quarterback. I mean, it's so hard to get a read on, you know, what he is, what he can do. I mean, this is somebody who no doubt was really hoping for that $100 million contract this offseason, and then boom, nobody wants him. Nobody's interested at all. I mean, Bruce Arias is like publicly bashing him, you know, before he gets free agency. You're hearing stuff from the head coach. You never hear, you know, that kind of criticism. Um, And then, yeah, I mean, he has to sign a contract that is, you know, next to nothing for the Saints to completely restart his career. So, you know, I thought that going into it, just kind of watching his press conferences at the end of the year, the last one that he gave at the Bucks, he seemed pretty irritated with the media there. And I mean, they were just doing their jobs. They're just asking him about, you know, the interceptions and, um, you know, kind of where his head at and everything kind of snapped and said, Hey, you know, I'm one of the best to ever play this game. Like check your sheet. I'm right there. I kind of thought that he might, like, after nobody wanted him, be even more pissed off and, and take it to another level. And I was really stunned at how rejuvenated, genuinely rejuvenated. And I get it. Like, you know, you might you might hear that, you might read that, and think, oh, my God, what's he going to say? Like, yeah, of course he's excited to go to a new team. But I'm telling you, I mean, he, he really could have talked about um, this new lot, of, lot in life for hours and hours and hours. He, he's, he's pumped. He's, he's really trying to change. Uh, his game and, and and rewire his quarterback brain in every way he can right down to the drills and, you know, trying to learn how to throw the ball away and, and becoming vegan, losing 20, 25 pounds. And I think he's seriously kind of attacking this next stage of his football career because I mean, let's face it. I and mean, he could be out of the league a year from now if he doesn't improve. Right. Uh, but he's in a good spot. I mean, yeah, he he's with, you know, I'm one of the greatest quarterbacks ever, one of the great, greatest quarterback coaches ever. Um, if it's going to work, it's going to work there. Yeah, that's going to be an interesting room down there. And, and, you know, not only because of 
the fact that Breeze is basically untouchable, but also you mentioned the presence of Taysom Hill and, and, and this whole idea that, um, you know, and you mentioned it in the story, Teddy Bridgewater got his big deal with Carolina only because Drew Breeze gets injured and then Bridgewater has the opportunity to play and, and seizes that opportunity and plays well. So it's almost like in a twisted way, you know, Jameis is going to need some kind of an opportunity probably, you know, because there's no preseason games this year. So he's not going to have the opportunity to, you know, get four games of film on tape, even in small portion sizes, if he only played a quarter or two. So there's a possibility that, you know, nobody sees him play a single snap this entire season. And then what? He goes into next year and he needs to sign another low level deal with somebody. So it's a very strange situation when kind of the the future of your um, you know, your, your ability to grasp a starting quarterback position almost hinges on somebody else in front of you getting hurt at some point or retiring at some point so that you can have an opportunity to step in there. That's going to be really fascinating to see how, how yeah. that one plays out, you know? Such a good point. I mean, and, and on top of that, this is somebody who, like, dominated and won at every level. I mean, he won in high school. He won in college. He's the youngest player ever win the Heisman Trophy. He's the first overall pick. So, I mean, he's he's been really, really good, and he's had tell, people telling him he's really, really good his entire life, and now the whole league says you're not good enough to be a star. And you're right, he might not even play it down this year. So, it's it's going to be fascinating. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a test to his, to his mental fortitude the entire season. He's saying everything right right now, but like, yeah, let's check in in November, December, and if he hasn't played a snap, really, really see where he is. And, I think that he chose New Orleans, though, too, because it is a spot that, you know, if, God, if they win a Super Bowl, you, you could almost see Drew Brees kind of riding off into the sunset there. But one way or another, who, who knows how much time he has left in the NFL. He, I think he'd even be willing to, to stay in New Orleans and wait that out as long as it could take. I mean, he, it sounds like he genuinely loves it there. You know, the other story that I wanted to ask you about was the Minka Fitzpatrick story that you wrote earlier this year because, you know, we talked about friction in locker rooms and things like that, and, and basically that's where the Minka Fitzpatrick story starts. You know, he gets drafted by the Dolphins and goes there, and immediately they try and play him in a position that, that he does not believe is his best position, and, and most people outside of that Dolphins organization would agree was not his best position. They had him playing sort of this hybrid strong safety inside linebacker, as you mentioned where in practice he's having to take on guards and you know mash with linemen you know trying to weed his way through the trash and things like that against guys that are 150 pounds heavier than him whereas you know at his best at Alabama he was playing all kinds of different positions from corner to nickel to free safety you know just kind of a Swiss army knife if you will and and so you know, he starts to go through his, his rookie year and, and all of a sudden he realizes this is this is just not working. And, and for trying to put in the good faith effort that he did there with Brian Flores to start the year, he gets to a point where he says, I can't do this anymore. And, and he wants a trade. And then there's a matter of will the team trade him and will the front office acquiesce to, to a guy's request. We see it all the time in sports. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. More often than not, I think eventually the team, you know, bends and buckles and breaks under that pressure because you don't want a superstar caliber player being disgruntled in your market. It's not good for business and it's not good for your locker room. So, 
I'm curious if you could kind of um, explain a little bit about what interested you regarding Minka Fitzpatrick and then also, you know, why he, he sort of went the path that he did and, and you know, risked being labeled a, a locker room problem for the sake of his own career. And then obviously it ended up working because he went to Pittsburgh and had just an unbelievably influential season. But can you kind of walk us through the dynamics of that situation? No doubt about it. I, I just think that he... He he knew his worth, for the lack of a better term. I mean, he knew where he came from. I mean, he, he knew that at Alabama with Nick Saban, he played every single position in maybe the most complicated defense in, in college football. I mean, definitely the most complicated defense in college football with the most demanding coach. I mean, he knew that he needed to use his brain. He knew that he needed to use his athleticism. Um, and that, that's what he did at Alabama. I mean, he was covering, he was playing free safety, strong safety, in the slot, out wide, all over the place. I mean, Nick Saban wanted to just unleash all of his gifts the best he could. And I was, you know, kind of surprised that Nick Saban was even willing to talk. I, it doesn't seem like maybe the most warm and fuzzy guy <laughs> to talk to, but he couldn't wait to talk about Minka Fitzpatrick and couldn't wait wow. to say that this is, one of the best players I've ever coached. He will go down as one of the best DBs, you know, if he stays on this track. So he, I think that says volumes in itself. And then you go back even further than that. And Mika Fitzpatrick got into, uh, you know, the, the hurricane just kind of completely wrecking their home and the foundation collapsing and the home being condemned and needing to live in his grandmother's basement. Um, it was, it was, it was tragic. I mean, it was traumatic. It challenged them just about every way and then taught him to really kind of live with conviction and to be bold and to not take anything for granted. So, um, heck yeah. I mean, yeah, you, you get drafted and the first year goes well, a new coach comes in, this new coach is known for his defensive acumen and they just shut down the Rams in the Super Bowl. And you want to give Brian Flores a, a chance and you want to believe. Um, and he was on board through OTAs through mini camp through early on in training camp. Uh, and it just got to a point where, in his words, they were choosing, you know, not to believe something. They were choosing not to see something. He asked to just get some reps, you know, in one-on-ones just to show them. And he said it lasted a day. So they moved him back, and then he's kind of going rogue. He's just up and leaving those drills, the, the hand-to-hand combat drills to just show them, and that ticked off coaches. So it, I, I really do – sincerely thinking and he said this to me um back in in december when i was doing a, a bigger Steelers story and and on mike tomlin and how in the heck they were still alive for the playoffs through all the injuries all that i mean he said it then that it wasn't the losing it wasn't the rebuilding that really rubbed him the wrong way i mean he, i i know that that was kind of a narrative i that's god i mean anybody with a half of a brain would think that was the case. This guy just doesn't want to lose by 40 points right. every week. I mean, they're getting smacked. They're trading away everybody. They were starting over. Uh, but he said it wasn't that. He goes, I, I, I'm telling you right now, I could have handled that. It was how I was being used. It was knowing my worth and knowing my value and playing that game within the game and, and not being able to do any of that in that role that he felt he needed to try to take back his control put himself in a position to succeed. And you're right. I guess he was right. I mean, that's exactly what he did. He goes to Pittsburgh. He's forcing turnovers every game. All of a sudden, quarterbacks aren't throwing his way at all and completely transformed the defense there. 
Yeah, a couple things that jumped out to me from that story that I thought were really good details. Um, first, you mentioned a little bit earlier the idea that, that he went rogue in practice with the Dolphins. <laughs> and so you, you paint this picture of a scene where he's he's asked to do these hand-fighting drills, like you said, and he just up and leaves and jogs to the other side of the field so that he can do one-on-ones with the receivers and the DBs. And the coaches didn't tell him to do this, and he just kind of did it. And you know, I, I've been watching a lot of mafia movies lately, and to borrow a phrase, you know, that guy's got a lot of balls to do something <laughs> like that. You know, I mean, I just, I can't picture a lot of players that young that are non-quarterbacks that could defy the coaching staff um, and and get away with it. If you're a first-round pick and a quarterback, and you know you're the franchise guy, and they've invested a lot in you, you can sometimes pull that on a coach, especially a young coach who doesn't have the pedigree or the experience or the reputation of a Belichick. And so, you know, with a Brian Flores there who came from the Belichick tree but was in his first year as coach, you can see a quarterback maybe getting away with defying him a little bit. But for a regular position player, that doesn't happen often. And so that told me a little bit about Micah's disposition, or Minka, excuse me, Minka's disposition. And you follow that up with some more details about time at Alabama where you know he chooses to go and sit behind Nick Saban and all the film sessions not necessarily because he wants to you know get any closer to hear what Saban is saying no he wants to look at his notes he wants to peek over his shoulder and see the kind of notes this guy has taken and that's how Minka develops the name the nickname Saban's son which was a great detail you put in the story and then the last piece of it that I found really interesting was that he gets to Pittsburgh and, you know, Mike Tomlin is the head coach and everybody knows that he runs that defense, even though he's not technically the defensive coordinator, but um, it's his defense. And, and he talks about how Tomlin understood how Minka could be used as a chess piece and how to deploy him around the formation. And the reason that that jumped out to me is I remember at the combine last year, I was talking to a former player, Tank Williams, who was a second round pick. Uh, out of Stanford. He was a sort of this inside linebacker, strong safety hybrid type. You know, didn't have a particularly great NFL career, had a lot of injury problems, but he played for a few different teams. He played for the Vikings. He played for the Patriots. He played for the Titans. He bounced around a little bit. And I remember asking him, I said, you know, who's the best X's and O's guy you ever played for? You know, very quickly, he says Belichick. And I said, okay, take Belichick out. The second best X's and O's coach you ever had, somebody who just saw it at a different level, taught it at a different level, whatever. And immediately he said Mike Tomlin. And so I think that that stuck with me as a guy who, you know, he's not at the Belichick level in terms of number of Super Bowls, obviously, but in terms of the way he taught guys in X's and O's. Uh, this particular player put him right below Belichick in terms of the best coach he ever had. And so when I saw that detail from Minka saying that, you know, he saw that in Tomlin, that Tomlin got him, that he understood him, that he knew how to use him, it just sort of registered to me as something that, you know, makes sense now. This is two guys that I've heard this from, that Tomlin just gets it at a higher level. And, and that's amazing, and it doesn't surprise me. Uh, it's 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 pretty wild. And everybody you talk to that's been around Mike Tomlin – um, has a story and, and it, it kind of like fits in that same lens. I mean, Chad Greenway for the the Vikings, I was just talking to him a few weeks ago and uh, he kind of went off on a tangent on Mike Tomlin. And that was his, his right. first uh, assistant coach or his first coordinator. That's right. When he was a rookie with the Vikings and Mike Tomlin was 24 years old, <laughs> yeah, 24 year old coach, you know, you'd think, Oh, this is a player's coach. You know, he's one of us. And he's like, no, like not at all. Uh, those, defensive meetings were the most confrontational that I've ever been a part of. And over time, Mike Tomlin has been able to just kind of stay true to himself 
and, and, and maintain that style while still relating to the modern day athlete. I mean, those guys would run through a wall for him. It was just fascinating last December to talk to player after player on both sides of the ball. And they just rave on and on about Mike Tomlin and how, how much they, they, they love him and want to fight for him and want to play for him. Right. And it's not like he's being buddy, buddy with the guys. I mean, he's, I mean, and God, I mean, how did, how did he last with Antonio Brown as long as he did? It's like Antonio Brown leaves yep. Pittsburgh and just loses his damn mind. So it's, uh, says a lot about the coach. And I, I thought you made a really great point there earlier too, Mike. Like, and I think there's a tendency to, you know, hear and read about a, a player like Minka Fitzpatrick, you know, leaving a drill, doing what he wants to do and think, you know, that's selfish. You know, how dare he? But I mean, this is also, you know, the son of a diesel mechanic that's out there with his dad, whether it's, you know, freezing cold, scorching hot, you know, work. I, I think his, his foundation is unbelievably unselfish. He, he just really believed in himself and really believe that if he's doing what he does best, it's going to help the team, not unlike a certain Packers quarterback early in his career. I mean, with Mike McCarthy in 2009, 2010, even 2011, you know, he's he isn't necessarily agreeing with those play calls coming in from Mike McCarthy and the formations that are being sent in, and he's, he's feeling the need to change stuff. He, he believes he has to. It's going to help him. It's going to help the team, and I mean, he he was a very young player, you know, still unproven in a lot of people's eyes, doing what he thought he needed to do. And, you know, I think it got obviously got to a point in their relationship where he took it too far. But early on, I, I think that there's probably a lot of people that kind of agree with Aaron Rodgers that, like, here's, here's Mike McCarthy kind of, like, relying on this talent and, and not necessarily scheme. And, and, and the quarterback's just kind of taken over. Um, so, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's such a case-by-case thing. And, and with Minka Fitzpatrick, um, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't classify him as a as a selfish person at all. You know, and I'm like I think I do after talking to him. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And and you know, it can be dangerous uh, to to make comparisons between people who have normal everyday jobs and professional athletes. But I do think that you know the way the Fitzpatrick story played out, it kind of just reminded me of any situation in life for a normal person where they start a career after college and they realize, holy cow, this is not what I really want to do. This is not what I thought. And you get like that one moment to make an audible and and switch fields or go back to school or do something else. And I'm not trying to say that every player should have one opportunity to demand a trade or whatever. But, you know, if, if you land in a situation in Miami where they completely do not think that you are what you want to be and they want to use you in a completely different role and cast you very differently, then, you know, it was almost like, because this is his career and this is his job, he took like that yeah. one moment to kind of say, whoa, whoa, I need to course correct and I need to go to a place that allows me to do more of what I need to do. And again, I understand it's a very dangerous thing to make metaphors between guys who make millions of dollars and play a game for a living versus people who, you know, come out of school thinking they want to be a lawyer and instead they go and end up be something else. Like, I get it. But I do think there are some parallels where that that does translate um, just a little bit. And, um, oh my God. you know, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I think, I think Pittsburgh has a chance to be pretty good this year, especially if Ben is even remotely, remotely healthy. Would you agree? Oh yeah. I mean, it's, they were able to stay in the playoff until week 17 with Devlin Hodges at quarterback, you know, every night was just, you watch a Steelers game, getting the ball past midfield was felt like an accomplishment. So to, 
to get Roethlisberger back, to get a lot of guys back. I mean, they had a ton of players go down. Um, the, yeah, you can't sleep on the Steelers. I mean, they're they're going to be right there every year with Mike Tomlin, and uh, they're going to try to get some more out of Ben Roethlisberger. I mean, who knows how long he can hold up, but uh, by all indications, he's looking healthy, looking good, and, geez, I mean, it's, that division is, is just going to be really fun to watch. Yeah, I want to stick in the AFC North there, and I want to ask you about another story you wrote this year. Uh, I think it might have been maybe one that I found the most interesting of the ones you've you've written so far this spring, and that was Hollywood Brown. And I think this might have been the last story you got to travel for, one of the last ones you got to travel for before COVID uh, shut down. And and Hollywood Brown is is an interesting guy for a lot of different reasons. Um, be, mostly because he's on the receiving end of, of passes from probably, you know, along with Mahomes, one and one A of the two most, um, you know, just compelling quarterbacks in the game right now. And, you know, Hollywood Brown is a guy who came out of Oklahoma, had all this speed, all this explosiveness. Everyone thinks he's going to be a touchdown machine. And, you know, his season starts out and it is that. It's exactly what everybody thought. But all along, he has this injury that, you know, not too many people know about what he's dealing with week to week and things like that. And he tells you about the the two screws that he has in his foot and he has to play with them all season long, dating back to an injury he suffered at Oklahoma. He tells you that, you know, contrary to what everybody thought he might weigh at a receiver position, he played at 157 pounds, which is just insanity to me. I mean, because even even small, strong safeties are going to be 210. And so you're talking about a guy that's you know, 50 pounds heavier than you tackling you downfield every single time or jamming you at the line of scrimmage with corners that weigh 190, 195. And, you know, the idea that these two guys, if they both stay healthy, Lamar Jackson and uh, Marquise Hollywood Brown can be sort of this, um, you know, this elite connection year after year is, is a really interesting thing to think about because when people envision Lamar Jackson, I think a lot of them still, the first thing they think of is his athletic ability with his legs. But you have to also keep in mind that he has this number one weapon that is going to be his number one weapon. And in fact, it was a guy he asked for, which I thought was maybe the most compelling detail of that story. You explain how the Ravens went to Jackson and said, who do you want to be your number one receiver? And he said, I either want Marquise Brown this year or I want Jerry Judy in next year's draft and so you know what did you kind of learn about the relationship between these two guys and the potential that their connection has moving forward assuming that both of them can stay healthy right yeah Lamar Jackson's like a co-GM that, that surprised me as well yeah. you know it, you know and it, it but you know he knows he knows what he's talking about too he knows that they're gonna run and run and run and do all these creative things up front and boom you know you get a dude with four two speed out wide one-on-one you can take advantage of it. And he's got, he's got so much touch too as a deep ball passer. So in theory, it's perfect. And you're right. He was basically, basically playing on one good foot last year. So I, I just think that, you know, he's being fully healthy, uh, being one of the, one of, if not the fastest player in football in that offense, it's almost too good to be true. And it's, he, he's beefed up. He's, he's not, you know, a buck 50 anymore. So I, I think that there is a lot of, uh, pound for pound strength to Marquise Brown and that he can kind of, you know, take a hit downfield from a DB, get back up. You know, you know, it's interesting too. I just think where they're from in South Florida, that area, it's just uh man, they're just built differently down there. And whether it's, you know, the pop Warner games, when you literally have adults on the sideline, you know, betting hundreds, betting thousands of dollars on your games and going nuts 
it's just a different level of intensity, diff, different atmosphere. The speed is just different. I mean, it's just like you know, you almost come out of the womb and you're just you're just born to be an athlete. You're born to be fast, and that's how Lamar Jackson's always been. That's how Marquise Brown's always been. Um, they worked at it. They work out together. They worked out together all off season, which is kind of interesting too. Where you know, with the pandemic and everybody kind of being all over the country, they're in the same area. They're able to keep running routes right. and working together. That's got to account for something. Um, you know, we all we all think that these teams could come out cold and rusty and and not be able to just kind of click on all cylinders offensively. But I, I think they'll be they'll be fine in that regard. Uh, it, it makes a lot of sense all the way around, and we'll we'll see what happens because. You know, I played devil's advocate last time we saw Lamar Jackson in Tennessee. I mean, Logan Ryan told yeah. me in the locker room, hey, we just did a little engage eight on Madden. <laughs> we just yeah. loaded up the line of scrimmage, forced him to be a passer. I know he put up a lot of numbers, but those are empty yards for the most part. Um, and he, he just couldn't do it. He couldn't, he couldn't beat them that way, just like he couldn't beat the, the Chargers the year before that way. Uh, he, he's that into it as a passer. And I think Marquise Brown, I mean, he could be – the ultimate wild card X factor, whatever you want to call me, with the Ravens getting to the next level and, and being able to do that. Yeah, the the biggest question I had coming away from the story about Hollywood Brown that you wrote was, can he do it physically for more than four to five really good years? You know, at a hundred, even at one hundred and seventy, one hundred and seventy five pounds, can he handle it physically for a decade, or is this a partnership that? could be really explosive, but it could also be something that doesn't last too long. That maybe they have like three, four, five really, really good years, but then once the speed starts to deteriorate a little bit for Hollywood Brown, and, you know, look, I, I know people are saying, well, you know, three, four, five years, he'll only be 26, 27, 28 years old. How's his speed going to deteriorate? I'm not saying like age-wise he's going to deteriorate, but every single time one of these guys takes a hit, and every single time they finish a game, and every single time they finish a season, they lose a tiny, tiny bit of speed. I mean, you covered mm -hmm. Randall Cobb. Just look at what he was like when he came into the league from his very first game and that ridiculous kickoff return touchdown he had. And then look at what he was at the end, basically relying on uh, scramble drill plays from Aaron Rodgers to get open because he didn't have the speed anymore to separate from guys. When you are a small player in the NFL and when you are a tough player and when you are somebody who is willing to take on hits like Randall Cobb was, like Hollywood Brown has been, you're going to lose a little bit of your, your edge year after year after year. So what do you think? Do you think he has the ability to, to be a longer-lasting player, or is this going to be a, a Tavon Austin kind of guy where he makes an immediate splash and, and then fades away quickly just because his, his body can't hold up? It's, it, it's such a – man, it's such a fascinating point. You know, as you're, as you're kind of breaking this down, I just keep thinking of uh, – like Zion Williamson in basketball, you know, yeah. and, you know, how long can he at that size with that explosion, keep it up? I mean, it might only be three, four years. I mean, it's, I don't know. I mean, that's, a, that's such a pounding that you take on your, on your joints, on your feet, on everything. And, you know, I bring it back to the Charlotte Hornets. Just, just look back at some of those Larry Johnson highlights, you know, and in the first two years of his career, I mean, he looked like Zion Williamson, then boom, he has back surgery and he's never the same player. I mean, he, he kind of evolved and, and changed his game up a little bit and was able to play, um, you know, into the, God, the late, late 90s with the Knicks and had some good moments, but he was never the same player. Uh, yeah, I, I guess with, with basketball, yeah. I mean, with football, with Marquise Brown, 
there's going to have to be an evolution. I, I will say what works for him is that the game is set up for somebody like him to excel for a long, long time. I mean, right. cornerbacks can't cannot cover like they used to, not even like five years ago. I mean, you, you can't even hand check. You can't do anything out wide. I mean, safeties are, are just trained to not look for that kill shot anymore. I mean, the kill shot has is, is basically been eliminated from the game. So you can you know, dash across the middle of the field and then not worry about getting smacked. Um, and then, then you got offensive just masterminds that are going to scheme you in ways and, and use you all over the field and get you in open space. I mean, look at what Andy Reid has done with Tyreek Hill. It would be really interesting to see how Henry Ruggs is used by Gruden on with the Raiders. These yeah. smaller, fast receivers are kind of the prototype now. Um, and I, you're, you're, you're just going to be a better route runner. I, I was just talking to uh, you know, one scout in the NFL about a quarterback who's kind of like big and lanky. And, and you know, is, can a quarterback like that ever just kind of become accurate? And he said, yeah, that's a good point. You know, maybe not. It's almost like you know, a bigger receiver isn't going to be as good of a route runner as a smaller receiver just because physically, when you're smaller, you can get in and out of your cuts better. I mean, it's just science. <laughs> so I, I think all those factors kind of combined really do give Marquise Brown a chance to play for a long, long time. Uh, but you're right. I mean, it, it is interesting because he is so I mean, spry. It's not like he's just going to all of a sudden beef up to 210. We'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. I hadn't really thought of it in terms of the way that defenses are being forced to change and and how they they have to be more passive now for you know fear of pass interference, all for the sake of the NFL scoring more points, which translates yep. to more excitement, which translates to more ratings. Um, you know, I, I think that the part of that story about Hollywood that got a lot of national attention was um, you know the quotes in there and and the passages in there about the Jerry Rice Joe Montana comparison and and how there were guys in the building uh, in Baltimore that that really believe that that is a legitimate thing that if these guys can stay healthy that they have uh, the talent and they have the the sort of connection between them to become you know one of the great tandems and and obviously Rice and Montana is probably the best tandem of all time because Jerry Rice is the best receiver ever and Montana is up there for you know best quarterbacks of all time so you know when when that kind of idea again it sort of goes back to what we were saying earlier about the the Jameis story when when that kind of idea is posited and thrown around and discussed um, you know, sometimes in, in sports circles, it's it's sacrilege to say somebody is close to Michael Jordan or it's sacrilege to say somebody is close to, uh, you know, Joe Montana or whatever player you pick. So what do, what do you think about the idea that these two guys could potentially, you know, be one of the all time great pairings, not just one of the modern day great pairings? Yeah, I don't know if anybody's going to come close to Jerry Rice. And I did try to get Jerry Rice for the story that this see what he had to say about that but I, mean, I thought it was actually going to happen but it but it never did I, I just think that in terms of dominance offensive just utter dominance and doing so in a new way um maybe there is a comparison there I mean you think back to when Jerry Rice and Joe Montana just I mean we weren't born yet Mike so I'm you know I'm acting like oh That's yeah true. remember remember the day when they no well we weren't around but we, we heard about it <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Offense, I mean, it, it completely changed football. And um, just taking those quick step drops and 
um, throwing a guy open and, and just kind of, you know, doing you know, death by a million paper cuts down the field. It's, uh, it was different. It was new and it was dominant. And I just think that the Ravens with Greg Roman at least believe that they are doing just new stuff offensively that could catch on. I mean, they completely embraced everything Lamar Jackson is about and, and let him just run the offense that suits him best. I mean, whether that's option stuff, scrambling stuff, improvisational stuff, just using him as a runner, working up the passing game off of that. I mean, there's no team in NFL history ran for more yards than the Ravens last year. So who knows how good this passing game could be when you do have a quarterback with surprisingly good touch and accuracy in Lamar Jackson and take advantage of teams loading up the box with eight, nine guys. I think that's where it comes from. It's like, man, all right, you want to load up the box? Well, we've got a healthy Marquise Brown out there running 4-2, one-on-one. Good luck. Uh, in that sense, maybe this offense does kind of start a trend and it becomes more of more and more and more of a trickle-up effect with college football and more coaches are willing to embrace the athletic quarterback and completely rip up the playbooks as they know them. And, uh, you know, you're looking for that small, one, you know, buck 50, buck 60 receiver that can run a 4-2 to, to be your Jerry Rice within that scheme. So, it, it's yeah, it, it, it's crazy to say, like, they're going to be Montana Rice. It's not crazy to say, though, that they could have a similar effect on the sport, especially when you just see what Lamar Jackson did a year ago. Yeah, yeah, I'd say that pairing is definitely one of the the ones I'm most interested in seeing this season. Um, you know, obviously nobody knows what's going to happen with COVID nineteen and whether or not the games are going to you know be able to to go full strength all season long. But it was nice uh, yesterday. We're recording this on a Tuesday morning, so it was nice on Monday of this week seeing all kinds of tweets and pictures and things from training camp that it was it was kind of cool to see like real football again even in a even in a small setting and and not knowing what might happen long term but I will say with uh, some of the advancements now with the, the saliva testing and the fact that a lot of these teams have actually limited initial exposures more than I thought they would I'm I'm actually more optimistic that a a larger chunk of the season or maybe even the full season will happen than I was uh, a while ago and and I don't know about you but I am dying to be able to have some Sunday afternoons and you know with no college football I think we might start to see some Saturday NFL games too I'm I'm dying to watch some football on the weekends oh my god I mean same here Mike it's you're right I mean Twitter is just uh just a a, a, a reprehensible place just obvious when, when you said it was <laughs> no good doubt. to see tweets I wanted to stop you right there and be like no it's it's never good to see tweets. What, what are you talking about? Uh, but, yeah, I'll agree with you there. It was kind of nice to see a tweet about, you know, uh, a completed pass versus air because that means that football is in the air. And I tell you what, like, this season's going to sneak up on us. It's crazy with no preseason. It's four, four, four weeks away is the season <laughs> yeah. opener. All of a sudden there's just going to be games and everybody's going to be like, whoa, holy cow, where did that come from? So that's that's pretty great. And I'm with you. You know, when, when baseball was starting to have some trouble there with, like, the Marlins and a whole team kind of getting it, and it seemed like they were just doomed, it was like, how in the heck can a non-bubble sport pull this off with the travel, with the amount of exposure to this? But I'm kind of hopeful now, too. I mean, I mean for, for one, like, the NFL just kind of plows through everything. I mean, any controversy, any obstacle, anything that could ever get in the league's way just seems like they overcome it and just – find a way to be unbelievably successful 
however yeah. you measure success. Um, and so if anything can kind of just plow through COVID, it's the NFL. And I think, like, logistically, maybe there is a needle to thread here, and they will find a way. I just It, it is it's okay for people to be optimistic about this all. That doesn't make you a terrible person to root for the NFL to pull this off if they're going to do it safely. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, just like I'm sure everybody who's listening to this podcast has had conversations with family members or friends or in their group chats or whatever about, oh, is the NFL going to work? Or, oh, is the NBA going to work? Or whatever. And, you know, no different than, than me and my friends. And my stance all along with the NFL, having covered the league for a few years and sort of seen how things work, is that I've always thought that the biggest risk factor to the NFL succeeding is not players deciding to go out to a bar on a Saturday night or, you know, go to a nightclub. Yeah, that could happen, no doubt about it. But to me, you know, and again, you and I covered a team in Green Bay that is very remote. So maybe this isn't as applicable to the league as, as I think it is. But I I was sort of, my eyes were open to the fact that these guys have so many hangers on and so many, mm-hmm. um, you know, girlfriends or wives or friends or whoever, family members that are flown in to stay with them for two weeks at a time, a month at a time, a couple days at a time throughout the season. Because these guys don't want to, if they don't live where they're playing, they don't want to be in a big empty house by themselves throughout the season. So they constantly have people coming through their house. Maybe it's a wife and kids. Maybe it's different girlfriends. Maybe it's family members. Maybe it's guys they grew up with because they have all these hangers on that are around them for the money or the attention or whatever. And it's these people that are going to be flying domestically through different airports, or it's these people that maybe they live driving distance away, but in their free time, meaning not the football player, these other people, maybe they're not being safe socially distancing. Maybe they're going out to nightclubs and bars and things, and then they're hanging out with, you know, a wide receiver, and the next day the wide receiver goes to work, and he's in a room with, you know, six other receivers, and then he's in the offensive meeting room or the offensive huddle, and there you go. So I've always thought it's it's less the, the social issue, because these guys are so busy that... Yeah, maybe occasionally on a Friday night, if it's a home game, they go out and do something. But for the most part, these guys are busy enough where they don't do a whole lot. I've always thought it's the people around them and the people that they're flying in or having visit them that are the biggest risk factor to the NFL. And so that's why I said I've been impressed that the the numbers have been as low as they have been so far. I kind of thought that with it being summer, that right away the numbers would skyrocket. And and I've been incorrect, and I'm glad that I've been incorrect because it means we're we're closer to football actually happening. So hopefully it plays out that way. But um, you know we'll we'll have to see. I'm I'm just I'm I'm more optimistic than I was. I will say that. Same. Totally agree with everything you just said there. I mean, there's just so many people around every individual player in their lives day to day i i do think training camp is kind of a different beast where you're you're almost kind of you know in your own little bubble in in your dorms and in your own little world for a month month and a half it'll be interesting once the season begins and guys want to you know talk with their girlfriends and their wives and their family members and see them like how it's it's just an impossibility to expect every single player to not come in contact with anybody. It's we're, we're going to see COVID cases. It's going to go up. You know, how does the league react and, and how, how, how do teams kind of follow the, the necessary precautionary measures when, when that happens? Cause it's, it's inevitable. I mean, it's going to happen. It's, it is interesting. I was just thinking about this though. Like I feel like every other press conference that we've ever been in, Mike, 
the head coach has said the words next man up. It's almost like a, a <laughs> reflex at this point. Like it's just there. I, I feel like you're, you're almost, you're not allowed to finish a press conference if you don't get in to the idea of next man up and that we believe in the next player that is in place of the injured player and everything will be fine. So usually it's just a bunch of BS and cliches and just regurgitated nonsense. It means something though. I mean, Hey, next man up actually carries a lot of value now. And teams are, can you imagine you get into the playoffs and you're the chiefs and you know, all of a sudden you have to start Matt Moore at quarterback and I don't know who's who's their backup running back. Like Daryl Williams is your starting running back, and you know you're picking up guys off the street that played in D three football to be your third string slot wide receiver. I, I don't know. There, there's going to be a scenario, a situation, something bizarre is going to happen in a huge, huge game in a huge, huge moment that we otherwise would not have if there wasn't a pandemic. And that's when <laughs> next man up will actually carry significance. So I uh, that. That will, it's going to happen. It's going to be interesting, and you don't want anything bad to happen to anybody. But I, I just feel like it's going to be inevitable with how contagious this is, and, and you have to be cautious, and you have to take the right measures. Yeah. No, I I think you know the easiest one to think about is is the quarterback position, like you just said. You know, some teams around the league keep two on their active roster, some keep three. I think it's a it's it's got to be a guarantee this year that every team keeps three. So I think that's going to be very different than it was in the past, um, because you need another option. And I wouldn't be surprised if some teams keep four. You know, because yeah. you need to have a starter, you need to have a backup, then you need to have an emergency plan. And then if all those guys somehow get sick, maybe you've got a practice squad guy that's your fourth. Uh, so maybe it's not four on the active roster, but you know, you, you got to have somebody that can, can go out there because, you know, let's say you only keep two. Okay, fine. Well, let's say it's, um, you know, let's say it's, uh, you know, I, the Packers one is the easiest for me because that's a team I've covered. So let's say it's Aaron Rodgers and let's say it's uh, just Jordan Love as the first round pick and Tim Boyle gets cut because they only want to keep two. Well, if Rodgers gets sick, then the quarterback, the backup was around him all week. So he's got a quarantine. And then all of a sudden you're starting some wide receiver who played high school quarterback at quarterback. And it's just, it's going to be a mess. So I, I, that's, that to me is going to be the interesting thing is how many starters will have to miss a game once yeah. one starter tests positive because all these guys are in the same meeting rooms all week. They're in the same huddle all week in practice. Does everybody have to quarantine for 14 days? And so you're literally going to see 11 new starters on Sunday. That is is the big unknown for me about the NFL. But yeah. right now, like I said, I think there's there's some optimism. So we'll, we'll have to see how it plays out. But I think three, four weeks from now, we're we're going to see some football and, you know, again, hopefully for the sake of fans, for the sake of journalists, for the sake of the players themselves, I, I hope it works out and it, and it should be fun. Um, you know, and, and obviously looking forward to, uh, to reading more stories by you, because that's another thing that gets to happen if the season does take place. Uh, it would be, it'd be a lot more difficult for you to, to write some stories this fall if things get canceled after four or five games. So I'm sure there's going to be a lot of uh, good stories up your sleeve later this fall. Looking forward to reading them. And, and Ty, can't thank you enough for carving out about an hour here to uh, to chat with me. This was a lot of fun and looking forward to uh, to putting this together so people can can take a listen later today. Oh man, really, really appreciate that, Mike. I mean, it was great catching up. Thanks so much for having me on, and cannot wait to see 
where you take your talents, to quote the great LeBron James, <laughs> cannot wait to see where you take your talents next in your career because uh, you are uh, hands down one of the best writers in the country, regardless of sport, and in a world where there are so many. Uh, I mean, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of good beat writers. Don't get me wrong, but there's there's many out there who would rather just pander on Twitter than do actual journalism and report and report and report the hell out of stories and write the hell out of stories and, and do the kind of stuff that matters. Um, I feel like there's maybe less of that now than there was, you know, five, six, seven years ago. Uh, And it just goes back to just how, you know, terrible social media is and just kind of warping people's purpose in their jobs. Uh, You are, you, you do it right and you do it better than anybody. So I cannot wait to see, you know, where, where you go next and, this podcast is awesome, man. I, I try not to miss them, and you've been doing a phenomenal job with it. Thanks, Ty. I really appreciate it. That means a lot. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to hopefully getting back to writing soon. It's been uh, it's been a challenging year for a lot of different reasons, but hopefully things can uh, get back to normal and I can land somewhere and and get back to business. But uh, until then, we'll continue to stay in touch. And uh, again, look out for Tyler's stories on on Bleacher Report. I know he's got. Some good ones coming, and uh, I'm looking forward to reading all of those. So, Ty, we'll talk again soon, and and thanks again, my friend. Anytime, Mike. Thanks so much for having me, man. So there you have it, a conversation with Bleacher Report NFL features writer and one of my closest friends, Tyler Dunn. Uh, I neglected to mention at the beginning of the episode that Tyler and I were also connected professionally when uh, we both had experience covering the Packers. And Tyler went to work for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, did an amazing job out there for four years, and when he left... Uh, I was able to apply for that opportunity, and and Tyler put in a good word for me. And then I went and took that job at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel and and covered the Packers for four years. So that was kind of a a unique connection as well. Not only were we friends for a long time, you know, through college and into our professional lives, but then I was able to sort of follow in his footsteps and and try and, you know, live up to some of the great stories that that he did there in Green Bay working for the Journal Sentinel. And I'd like to think that that I carved out my own little niche there as well. And so uh, two former Packers beat writers. You know, cutting their teeth in Green Bay and then, uh, you know, advancing on into the NFL world. It's it's been pretty cool to uh, to have that in common with Ty and, and sort of follow our career paths and keep in touch and check in on each other and all that kind of stuff. It's it's really cool as well. I mean, it, it might sound kind of nerdy, um, but from one writer to another, I always really like hearing about how other reporters go about their jobs and I'll ask all different kinds of guys that you know Greg Bishop was on the show earlier he's one of my friends who I talk to about these types of things uh, you know Pete Thamel, Connor Orr, Matt Ehall, Zach Schonbrunn, a lot of these Syracuse guys um, you know Jesse Doherty, uh, Sam Fortier, I'll pick all their different brains not all of them are NFL writers either and and you can just kind of learn a little bit it's like when uh, you know when a, a rookie basketball player goes and, and works out with LeBron James you pick up a little move that he does or a little hesitation or uh, a certain drill that he uses in practice it's the same kind of thing with writers you pick up an interview technique or um, you pick up a type of question you should be asking or a method of research that you should use so there's all different kinds of nerdy elements that that I benefit from when I talk to Tyler and when we we have these kinds of shows where I talk to other journalists about how they do their job and and how they report their story so hopefully it wasn't too much inside baseball for you I get the sense you know at this point in my career that that you guys like hearing about this kind of stuff from writers because it is kind of taking you inside of a world that that you're not part of as non-journalists so hopefully you found it interesting and uh, you know I'll mix in some more writers as we go down the road I want to thank everybody for tuning into today's show and 
sticking with it. It was definitely a little bit of a longer episode, but again, I think it was one that that you guys will like, and uh, I had a lot of fun doing it, so it was great to uh, have some extended time with Tyler. Please feel free to check out all of our other episodes. They're available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. Don't forget, if you're listening on an Apple device, please leave a star rating, preferably five stars if you like the show, and maybe a comment. All of the star ratings and comments help with positioning in the iTunes store, and the better positioned you are, uh, the wider audience you have, and, and the more more listeners you can potentially reach. It's it's kind of crazy to think we're already at episode 20, back when I started this in, in the spring or maybe even the late winter, really, when I didn't really know what it was going to be, and, and I was able to do 19 consecutive weeks without missing one, and then I had a guest fall through, and there was a, a week in Connecticut where I live now where we were without power and without running water for five days because of a tropical storm that devastated the state. So I lost a, a week there, and, and that you know happened to be the week when the guest fell through, so it kind of was fortuitous in that regard, but uh, we're back on track now. I may drop down to two episodes a month instead of four. It was getting pretty hard uh, to find people, especially as, you know, families started going on vacation and things later in the summer, and now that the season is ramping up, guys that are in the league, NFL-wise at least, are busy, and so it's a little harder for me to get guests, but the goal is now probably to do two a month, and if I'm able to mix in, you know, something a little bit more uh, maybe I will. And, you know, there's there's no real structure to this. It's free form. There might be more episodes in a row or fewer, but hopefully you guys enjoy all of them. I'm doing my best to bring you guys a, a quality product. And again, thank you so much to everybody who listens and for all the support thus far. It, it really does mean a lot to me. So until the next episode of this podcast, I hope you guys have a terrific rest of your day, a terrific rest of your week, and I will talk to you again soon. Mm-hmm.